Some of you may have recognized the guy of that video. His name is David Platt, and he has written several well-known Christian books, uh, Radical, Counterculture, um, some of the most recent ones he's written. Uh, he's currently a pastor in the Washington, D.C. area, but a few years ago, uh, he was the president of the International Mission Board, which is one of the two mission agencies that we as Southern Baptists um, help contribute to through the cooperative program. The other one is the North American Mission Board, and uh, for a long time, uh, kind of both of these boards boards kind of had this same thing going, that uh, our job to get everybody involved in missions is threefold. You pray, you give, and you go. Okay, And so what they would say and what they continue to say is that there is no one who cannot be involved in the work of missions because all of you can fall into one of those three or all three of those or, or two of those three, that every one of us can fall into one of those things. We can either be praying for missions, we can be praying and giving to missions, or we can be praying, giving, and going on missions, whether it's short-term or long-term um, missions. And so I want to kind of just reiterate what he said that in that video is that, that we have the opportunity, not just through the funds that we send this group, uh, but we have the opportunity to help spread the gospel into the Middle East, into the remote parts of Africa, to Southeast Asia, places that your eyes are honestly probably never going to see, places that your feet probably are never going to touch the ground. Yet you can have a part in sharing the gospel there. You can have a part in doing the work that God has called us to do in making disciples of all nations. And this amazing opportunity comes, and you don't even have to leave America. You don't even have to leave North Carolina. In fact, you don't even have to leave your seat. Because it doesn't matter going over there as much as what we are doing here as our work is simply doing it on our knees and praying on our knees. You see, prayer is a huge part of missions and praying for ministries that are happening all around the world. It's the opportunity that all of us have. In fact, one missionary put it this way. She simply said that prayer is the work. It is the most essential work. It is prayer that opens the door for the gospel to be shared and for lives to be transformed. And as we look in Romans chapter 15 this morning, uh, we're going to hear that same message spelled out by Paul. We've been going through the past couple months looking at some of the Paul's prayers, uh, really jumping around to different letters that he wrote and different things that he was praying for different churches. And as we get to Romans 15, it's going to be a little different. We're going to start in verse 22. It's going to be a little different than some of the other uh, passages we looked at because instead of Paul praying for this or asking um, someone to pray for other people, this is one of a few times that Paul turns it on himself, okay? This is one of the very few times, in fact, there's only three times, and this is one of them, where he asks other people to pray specifically for him and what he's going through or what he's dealing with or what he's about to deal with. And so as we start reading chapter or verse 22, um, it's going to give you some background. And so you're going to be like, this is not a prayer all. He's just telling us what's getting ready to happen, what he hopes happen. It's going to become important that we get this background, this context of what he's saying and where he's at and where he's going, where he hopes to go. Um, so we're going to start in verse 22. Um, his real prayer really starts in verse 31. Um, but we'll get to that. So I want to start in verse 22 and read through the kind of the context to fit it into where his prayer is so important. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, we'll be in Romans chapter 15, uh, verse 22, and we'll read down through verse, verse 32. Uh, verse 22 starts off this way. It says, This is why I have been, been prevented many times from coming to you. But now I no longer have any work to do in this providence. And I, am strong, and I have strongly desired for many years to come to you. Whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through. 
and to be assisted by you for my journey there once I have first enjoyed your company for a while. Right now, I am traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased and indeed are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefit, then they are obligated to minister to Jews in material needs. So, when I have finished this and safely delivered the funds to them, I will visit you on the way to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessings of Christ. Now I appeal to you, brothers, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to join with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. And here's actually the, here's what he's asking them to pray in verse 31. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea, and that the gift I, have, the gift I am bringing to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. Let's pray together this morning. God, we are so thankful for this moment and this time. And uh, God, we are so thankful that together we can cry out, Holy, holy, holy. God, we are so thankful that we are not in this world alone. God, that we are not isolated, that we are not separated, that we are, are able to come together physically. We are able to come together spiritually online. God, we are so thankful for this time that we have together. And so God, I pray that that we not waste it, that we not take it for granted. God, I pray this morning that we didn't come here just to fellowship, and we didn't just come here to talk, and we didn't just come here to hang out with each other. God, I pray that we came to be with you. And in being with you, I pray that we came to be corrected by you, and convicted by you, and encouraged by you, and strengthened by you. And so God, I pray all this this morning that we will stand in Your presence. That we are ready to be corrected and we are ready to be convicted and we are ready to be encouraged and we are ready to be strengthened and we are ready for whatever it is that You have for us in this moment. And so God, I pray that You use this text to open our eyes to the part that we can play, not only with the ministries that are here in this church and the ministries in this area, but to the Gospel that is spreading around the world. God, I pray that you will use this text so that we will be open to do the work, to do the essential work. God, hear our battle cry this morning. Strengthen us, comfort us, and convict us, and correct us, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you live in the Cleveland area or um, more towards the Salisbury area, um, you're probably familiar with Livingstone College. And Livingstone College, uh, though many of you may not have been there, you may not be really familiar with the school, it's a, a college in uh, Salisbury. And if you've driven through Salisbury, there's a good chance you've at least seen signs pointing towards uh, the school or you've seen the billboards and something like that. What you may not know um, is that Livingstone College is named after a guy named David Livingstone. All right? And David Livingstone was a doctor in Scotland before he became an explorer and a Christian missionary in Africa. 
Africa, right? And he, he's well known as in the kind of the, the missionary circles and uh, well known in the, the uh, Christian circles, this leader. And so he was not only just a, an explorer, but he really went to the heart of Africa. His goal uh, was to go completely across the continent of Africa. And so he became the first non-native, the first white person to transverse the continent of Africa from east to west, right? He started in the southern part and he worked his way up into the heart of Africa. And then he went from the east coast to the west coast. He was the one who discovered Victoria Falls. Now, it's always been there. People always knew it, it was there. But uh, believe it or not, the whole continent of Europe never knew that Victoria Falls, this beautiful uh, waterfall, was ever there until David Livingston went there and, and realized it was there and mapped it out. He mapped over a million square acres that have never been charted before by anybody. Right? He traveled over 29,000 miles. Right? And this was in the 1800s. Okay, so he, he didn't, it wasn't like he just jumped in his car and took off driving. This was a lot of work. And so he um, began his ministry in our Africa. And uh, it was very hostile when he started working into the hearts of Africa. And when he started going deeper in, into the parts of Africa that had never been charted before, never had a, a person go there, um, he, he began to realize that he wasn't necessarily a welcomed visitor that he began to encounter some tribes and some folks that they weren't too excited about him being there. In fact, um, he, one of his journeys that he was on, um, he was leading this expedition. He was trying to share Christ with these tribes as he was coming to them. And he got word that one of the tribes in the surrounding area was very unhappy and very um, skeptical of them. And so they were really going to track them down. And so they, he'd got word that this tribe was tracking them all day long. And everywhere they moved, this tribe was kind of moving in behind them. They had been tracking them for days and days and days. And he finally got word that, hey, listen, you need to know that we've had scouts go out. This tribe is within distance of us. Um, and they are planning to attack us tonight. Okay? So just know, um, I don't really know that there's anything we can do about it, but you, we just need to be aware that there's a good chance that we're going to be attacked tonight, and their goal is not just to take us captive. Their goal is to kill every one of us. And so David Livingston wrote in his journal that night on January the 14th, 1856, he wrote in his journal that he kept a log in every single day, and he wrote in this journal that night before he went to bed about how he feared, the quote, the savages, but he had complete confidence in Christ. And he went to bed that night having this confidence in Christ. And uh, he woke up the next morning almost a little surprised that the tribe didn't attack. That, that, they weren't, that he wasn't dead. And maybe he was a little disappointed because he thought maybe this was a chance to go to heaven instead of being stuck in Africa. But he, he woke up and he was kind of shocked by this. And, and so later on, uh, after a couple years, uh, he began to develop a relationship with this tribe that was going to attack him. And so the whole tribe became Christians. And he had this great conversation with the chief. And he said, listen, chief, i got to ask you this question. He said, just uh, about a year ago, you guys were tracking us down. And, and i got to ask you, we heard that you guys were going to attack our camp and you guys were going to kill us and the chief said yeah we really were and David Livingston said you guys were really going to kill us that night and the chief said absolutely we were ready we were going to end your life and we were going to end the life of everybody that was with you that very night and David Livingston was confused and he said can I ask why you didn't what what stopped you from doing that and the chief looked at him and said we were on our way we were making our way through the jungle to you. And he said, we got close enough and we were getting ready to attack. And then we saw the 47 guards that were surrounding you with swords. And David Livingston was just kind of confused. And he said, we, we don't have any guards. 
We don't have anybody who's protecting us. In fact, I don't, we've got a few weapons, but we don't have anybody who's going to stand against what you have with your army. And so the chief was kind of confused, and he said, No, I assure you, there were 47. We counted them. Every one of our scouts counted them. There were 47 men surrounding your camp, and they were all armed and standing at your defense. And so David Livingston was called off guard, and he went back to Scotland a couple years after this, and he was sending in a church uh, that helped support him, helped send him money, and he was telling this exact same story. He was telling this story about how he was going to be killed and there were all these guards that were supposedly there protecting him and protecting his, his, uh, his uh, group that was working through Africa. And he said as soon as he finished talking, this man rushed up to him with a book in his hand and he said, what date did you say? And he said it was January the 14th, 1865. Or excuse me, 1856. And the guy said, you won't believe this. And he opened up his prayer journal that he had in his hands. And he said, look at this date. January 14th, 1856. I wrote it down. On that day, there were 47 men that gathered in this very room. And we were praying for you and for your protection. 47 men gathered in a room praying for the protection of a missionary who was doing work in Africa And David Livingston was just shocked. And you could read it on his face. Because he knew exactly who the 47 guards were in that very moment. You see, that day David Livingston came to realize what Paul already knew and was telling us about here. That prayer is the battle cry that happens in the midst of a spiritual warfare that surrounds us and everyone that's involved in the work of missions. You see, in this letter to the Romans, it's different than most of his letters because in the letters that we have worked through, most of the letters... Paul is working with a church. He's writing to a church that he has a personal connection with. He's writing to a church that he either helped start or he helped get established or he helped grow. And this one's different because if you read the letter of Romans, it's different. He's never seen these folks. This is not a church that he established. This is not a church that he helped plant. This is very different than Ephesians and Galatians and all these other letters that he's, he's been writing. Because if you read those, almost all of those have kind of this personal connection with them. But in this one is different because he doesn't have this personal connection. He's never been to the city of Rome up until this point. He's going to get there later as, as, as he's praying to get there, but he's not at this point there. And so he's writing to this group of Christians that he really doesn't know. He, he's writing to this group of Christians that he really has no personal connection with. And so it's kind of interesting that out of all the churches that he asked to pray for him, right? Do you remember I told you there's only three letters where he asked them to pray for him for something specific? There's only three of them. Out of all the letters he wrote, one of them is a church that he's never been to, never met these people, and that's one of the three that he's asking to pray for him. You see, and he's asking to pray for them because if we look in verse 30, we're going to find out that he's making this request not out of some personal connection or experience that he has with them, but rather out of this spiritual connection, this general identification that he shares with people that he's never even met before. And so we're going to look at verse 30, and we're going to kind of walk through this kind of step by step because there are some great things going on in verse 30. And it's one of those verses that we tend to skip over because it's kind of like an intro. It's kind of a bridge between what he was talking about and the real stuff. But if you skip this verse, man, you're going to miss the beauty of the real stuff, right? So we're going to go into verse 30, and we're going to walk through it very slowly, step by step. Paul writes, he says, now I appeal to you, brothers, right? He uses this family word, this idea of a brother. And he says, listen, I've never met you, but we're family. 
uh, we, we are very different in the, that we don't share a, anything in common. In fact, um, we have a very different history. Uh, we are very different ethnic, ethnicity. Right? And so the connection we have is the same as if I would have with a brother or a sister. And so even though we've never met each other, even though we, we don't, our paths and have probably never crossed, even though I come from a different place than you and my skin tone may be a little different than your skin tone, none of that matters because we have this connection, as he goes on in verse 30, that through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he calls them brothers because there's this family atmosphere, there's this family culture that we when we are in Christ together, through Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, we are tasted salvation together in Christ. And so he recognizes that we are bonded together, not just through Christ, but as he goes on, through the love of the Spirit. And so I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but I want to make sure that you fully appreciate what Paul is saying. He says, listen, the blood of Christ is completely sufficient to erase your sins, to wipe away your sins. But it's more. Because the blood of Christ will not only wipe away your sins, it will wipe away my sins. And the blood of Christ will wipe away and erase every difference that is between you and me. Every category that you put yourself in and I put myself in a different category, it's gone through the blood of Christ. Every language barrier, it's gone through the blood of Christ. Every gender barrier, it's gone through the blood of Christ. Every ethnicity, every social, economic, it's all gone. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we come to the cross because it erases our sin, but we come to the cross because it puts us in a family through His blood because it erases all of our differences. And I share that with you, and I'm so excited to share that with you this week because next week we are going to join with at least three other churches who look very different than us. One of them is extremely different than us. And, and the society around us would tell us, you guys shouldn't be with them. You guys don't have anything in common with them. You grew up on a different side of town. You grew up in a different lifestyle. Than, and so our society would do everything they could to splinter us and separate us. But they are brothers and sisters through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are cemented together. I don't care what society says about us. I don't care what society says that you shouldn't have anything to do with. I don't care what society says that, that, that is different about you because on the inside, when we come to the, the name of Jesus, when we come through the love of the Spirit, we are one and we are united together. And so when we start this idea, we see that prayer is this battle cry in the spiritual warfare and it clearly identifies whose side we're on. Because when we're fighting on my knees, I'm not just fighting fighting for me. I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting for you because you are my brother or you are my sister in Christ. And I'm fighting for you and we're connected because it's no longer my identity. It's the identity I have through Christ Jesus. It's no longer me. It's Him that is my identity. It is Him that is my everything. It is Him that has cemented me together with you through the love of the Spirit. And so if we have tasted the same salvation, if we've experienced the same love of the Spirit then how can we not pray for each other? And Paul is writing, he says, listen, you guys really don't know me. I've never met you, but you are my brothers and you have the same salvation I have and you have the same love of the Spirit. And so I'm going to ask you to pray. And so how could we ever hear a prayer request from a brother and yet turn a deaf ear to it? How could we ever see a brother or sister in Christ calling out for help and saying, no, it's okay, I'll just cross on the other side of the street? So Paul is appealing to them, not on this personal level, but on this spiritual level, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are connected through Christ and through the love of the Spirit. And so all the differences we have are erased. And so I'm going to ask you to pray for me. I'm going to ask you to raise your voice and your battle cry and join with me in the struggle, even though you've never met me, because we are cemented together in this family of God. We are brothers and sisters, and I don't care what we look like on the outside, on the inside. 
we've got the same spirit in us. And so he says, listen, I really need you to raise your voices, to, to, to raise your battle cry and join in the struggle with me. That's what Paul is asking for these brothers to do, even though he's never met them. He says to join him in the spiritual fight, in the struggle. And as we keep working through verse 30, he, I'll start back at the beginning. He says, now I appeal to you, or I urge you, brothers, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit to join me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. And this word that's translated fervent is really an interesting word in the Greek. It's really the only time that it appears in the Greek New Testament. And it's one of those times that Paul uh, kind of, we call it a Paulism because Paul will use this word. Nobody else will use it. He'll use it only one time. And he uses it in such an interesting way because what he really does is he takes the same word. And and, uh, this is why I love Paul because me and him, I think, would get along. Because Paul sometimes just makes up words to add emphasis to them, okay? And I'm completely fine with making up words that you just want to use them because you can, all right? So Paul, what he does is he takes this word and he wants to add emphasis. He takes this word that really means to struggle or to wrestle with, and he takes it and he mirrors it to itself. And so it's on. A, it's funny because to add emphasis, this is how important this is. I'm going to use this word and I'm going to put it together so it's going to make this really long word because let's be honest, when you're reading a book or you're reading a text, what jumps out at you? That's a huge word. What he really did was he used the same word twice. He just connected them together because he wants you to see this is how important this is. And so this idea of fervent prayer is probably a better translated to, I want you to join in the struggle with me in prayer. I want you to join in the strife or wrestling together with me, not against me, but with me. I want you to come alongside me and push against or fight against these evil forces that are standing in my way. Imagine if, if someone was pushing against a wall and they're trying to push that wall over and they can't get it over by himself and he's saying listen I need help I need you to come stand beside me and push on this wall with me and as far too often we see prayer as anything but that far too often we are so passive in our prayers I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand by any means but how many of us have laid in our bed at night and we're going to have our quiet time we've read our Bible and we're going to lay in our bed at night and, and we're going to pray and we're going to spend this time praying and so we close our eyes and then we wake up the next morning, we have no idea if we even said amen or anything that happened in that prayer. Okay? I don't know if that's happened to you. It's happened to me. I'm just going to be honest. And like I said, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I want to be clear. That's not the kind of praying that Paul is asking for here. That's not what Paul is wanting us to do here, either for the Romans or for him. He says, listen, I want you to be praying this fervent prayer. I want you to join me in this struggle. This is the kind of prayer that drives you to your knees. This is the kind that that when you struggle and join with me in the fight, the kind of prayer that that doesn't leave you refreshed and energized. I love it when prayer does that, and it will do that. You walk away and you have this time of prayer, and man, you're just refreshed and energized. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I want you to be worn out. Because you've struggled. I want you to leave this time of prayer drained and exhausted because you have lifted up your battle cry and you have wrestled not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and authorities and against the powers of this world of darkness and spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians. He says, I want you to do battle with me. I don't want you to be passive in your prayers. So let me ask you, church and brothers and sisters in Christ, when was the last time you prayed like that? When was the last time prayer woke you up instead of putting you to sleep? When was the last time that that you prayed like you were in a wrestling arena and you were going to get Satan himself? When was the last time you broke out sweating because you were praying so intently? When was the last time that when you said amen, you were physically exhausted and worn out because you have been wrestling and doing the battle with the demons themselves? 
In fact, when was the last time you were so powerful in your prayer life that when you lifted the battle cry in the name of Jesus, the spiritual demons took off running and you said, not today, I'm coming after you instead of you coming after me. When was the last time that you were exhausted because you were that passionate and that involved in your prayer? You see, He's not asking us to be passive. And so often we think about this idea that we could just pray and it's just this calm, quiet time. And there are times that that's true. But there are times that Paul says, you've got to get in the battle. You've got to get in this fight. And, and Paul is begging the Romans and he's begging me and you. He says, stop being passive and stop being lazy in your prayers. He's begging us to join him in the struggle. Join him in the fight. Wrestle along beside our brothers and sisters in Christ. Join them in fighting against the darkness and struggle they're on and to carry the light of the gospel to the ends of the world. You see, you want to be praying for missions and ministries? Start with that. Start praying against the darkness that they're encountering. Start joining with them and pushing against the wall that they're encountering. And so he, he's praying that they are active in their prayer because he really wants his ministry and his mission to be unhindered and fully accepted. We see that in verse 31. He makes two, really two kind of significant prayer requests in that verse. In verse 31, he starts off with, and he says, This is what I want you to pray for me, brothers. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea. This is the, the first one. He, he's asking really for a prayer of protection, that he be rescued or delivered from unbelievers in Judea. And, and on some level, he's really just praying like kind of what we would expect, kind of this physical protection. He's already told us that. That's the reason I read the background. He's already told you that he's traveling to Jerusalem with a large sum of money, some uh, money that's been taken up by a couple different churches to Jerusalem. And, and kind of like today, it's really not safe to be traveling with a lot of money, especially if other people know you're carrying a lot of money. Um, and it was really bad in those days. So in some level, he's simply just asking, pray that I'm safe. Okay, Pray that I make this journey safely and I get there unharmed. But on a deeper level, it goes kind of beyond just the physical protection to really this matter of safety that he's asking, really this matter of protection that he's asking for. You see, this phrase that's translated in verse 31 to the unbelievers in Judea is probably better understood to not just unbelievers, but the disobedient ones in Judea. And that kind of changes our understanding because when we think of somebody who's an unbeliever and we leave it at that, we kind of leave this idea that it's just kind of a preference. Well, I can believe in this, and I can believe in that, and I prefer to believe in this. And when we see unbelief in that aspect, it's really no different than picking an ice cream flavor. Think about it. You walk up to an ice cream counter, I like that flavor. No, I don't really want that one. I'll take this one. Okay? And I can have my preference, and you can have your preference, and you can have your preference, and you can have that preference. And it doesn't make a difference. But when all of a sudden you change it from an unbelieving or a, a personal religious preference to idea of being disobedient... And that really changes it. Because you're not walking up getting to pick which one you want anymore. What you're doing is you're saying, listen, God has a plan. God has one significant plan. He's got one matter of direction. And you either choose to obey it or you choose not to. You see, it's not a preference. It's a choice. And so what he's praying for, these folks that are, are being disobedient in Judea, it's really a matter. Uh, they are not just uh, choosing not to believe. They're really an act of defiance. They're really an act of rebellion against what Christ has said and what Christ is doing. And they're really being rebellious against God is, listen, God, i got a better plan. I know, I know this Jesus, and I've heard his stories. In fact, I walked with him on roads, and I, just, I don't think that's it. I just got a different plan. 
You see, when we start to choose a different path than what God has laid out, when we start to choose against the gospel, really means that we are going to stand in a judgment for our, against ourselves. Because when we look at God and we say, listen, God, i got a better plan. God, I've got a better standard of judgment than your standard of judgment. So don't fall into this idea that folks just, oh, you can be an unbeliever and that's okay because you just pick and choose what you want to. That's not an option. It's not this pick and choose what you want to. We're all going to end up in the same place. Paul says, no, I want you to be clear. If you don't choose the gospel, then you're choosing to rebel against God and rebel against the plan that He has. You either choose the gospel or you choose to fight against Him. You're either on the side of God and His plan and His standard or you're not. It's not I just like this when I like, no. You're being disobedient to the God who created you, disobedient to the God who's going to judge you. And so Paul is praying for protection from those who are actively rebelling against God and, and, and he, those that are willingly standing in disobedience to him and the gospel. And he's mainly referring to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And he's praying this because he honestly needs to. You see, Paul used to be a hero in Jerusalem. Paul could walk the streets of Jerusalem and folks loved him. I mean, he had authority. People loved to listen to him. And, and people were, were so excited when Paul was coming to town, except his name wasn't Paul, then it was Saul. And everybody loved him. All the Jewish leaders loved him. He was like this prodigy kid that they were grooming and he was going to be this great leader. And they had great aspirations for him. And then one day... Paul is on a different mission journey. He's going from Jerusalem. He leaves Jerusalem. He's going to Damascus. And on that way, he meets Jesus on a road. And when he did, everything in Paul's life changed. And when it changed, the crowd changed as well. You see, they didn't like Paul anymore because what Paul was doing was going after Christians and now he's become a Christian. Now he's become the chief Christian. And all this grooming, we've taught him the Old Testament. We've been pouring into him. Now he's using it against us. And we don't like that anymore. We don't like this guy anymore. And so several times, if you read through the book of Acts, several times these leaders in Jerusalem actually send people after Paul uh, to stop him from sharing the gospel. In fact, if you look at Acts uh, chapter 13, verse 50, it's just one example. He says, But the Jews incited the prominent women who worshipped God and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the district. So the leaders of Jerusalem sent people to the city that Paul was in and said, listen, don't listen to this guy. And they, they actually threw them out. And if you go on to the next chapter, chapter 14, we're not going to look at a specific verse, but they do the same thing there. In fact, there they take it a step further. They try to have Paul stoned to death. And so clearly these guys don't like Paul. They don't like his message. They don't like him coming in the area. And so he says, listen, you guys that are in Rome, I want you to pray that these guys won't stand in my way. Pray that all the hindrances are taken out. Pray that, that, that all the hindrances will be stopped. And they won't try to stop me or the mission that God's called me to. And so first he asks them to pray for his protection. And then he asks them to pray for his acceptance. And then the second request that we find at the very end of verse 31. He says, pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers or from the disobedient ones in Judea. And that the gift I bring to Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Now, when you first read that, most people kind of think, well, this is, this is kind of hard to figure out. Why would we need to pray over this? I mean, he's got money. They are poor and needy. Why wouldn't they? I mean, it sounds like the request has already been prayed for. It sounds like it's already been met. And so it's this free gift. He's not going to charge them anything. Why wouldn't they accept this gift that he's bringing them? They're on really hard times. He's bringing them finances to help with that. Why wouldn't they accept that? And so to get that answer, we've got to go back a little bit in the passage. That's the reason I read the context. Uh, just a little bit back into the passage. And we'll follow back with me to verse 25. And we'll kind of see that where the gift come from 
makes a difference. Verse 25, he says, right now, I'm traveling to Jerusalem to serve the saints. Okay, so as, as I'm writing this letter to you, Romans, I'm on my way there. Right? So he's hoping this letter gets to them before he gets to there. So, and then he goes on in verse 26, because everything sounds good in verse 25. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm carrying this with me. Verse 26, he goes on to say, For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. We see a little more why this is a problem in verse 27. He says, yes, they were pleased. And indeed are indebted to them, get this, for the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual benefit then they are obligated to minister to the Jews in material needs. See, now we start to understand why Paul is worried about it. See, this money that he's bringing to Jerusalem is to help the Christians in Jerusalem who used to be Jews, but now they became Christians. But this money is coming from Christians who didn't used to be Jews. They used to be Gentiles. And so he's bringing them money from people that their whole life they have been taught to hate. He's bringing them money from people their whole life they've been told, stay away from them. They're unclean. They're ungodly. They will lead you in the wrong way. They will pollute your religious beliefs. Don't accept anything from them because they're just here to take advantage of you. They're just here to rule over you. And so stay as far away from any Gentile that you ever come in contact with. And so Paul is bringing a gift from these people to these other people that this whole life they've been taught, you stay away from them and you don't take anything from them and Paul is bringing this gift and he's saying listen I really need you to pray that these people will accept what's been given to them I'm really asking you to pray for these Christian Jews that they won't be so proud or so blinded by their hatred and arrogance that they won't accept the gift that someone has provided for them. And I'm praying, I want you to pray that because this is going to be a moment of great unity within the church, the church universal. And as D.A. Carson put it, he says that if the Jerusalem saints would come through this with the right attitude, then they not only would give thanks to God, but there would be this rich infusion of the spirit of unity in the church that's scattered throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. And says, listen, Paul is saying, listen, I need you to pray for my protection, but I need you to pray that the darkness that they are in, the blinders are taken off, and they see that they are brothers and sisters in Christ as well. I'm praying that they see that this is very specific to them. I'm praying that they will see that, that this is a moment of unity versus a moment of discouragement, a moment that, that they have to accept this handout. I'm praying that they will see that the spiritual blinders will be taken off, that the hatred will be taken off, that there will be nothing standing between them and the free gift that I'm offering them. That, that I just pray that they'll accept it. And so as we work through Paul's prayer... We read these two prayer requests. He's praying for specific protection, and he's praying that this gift be accepted. And as we read those two, and you kind of look at it, and you're like, well, that's great. That's what Paul's praying, or that's what Paul's asking for these Romans to pray. But what does that have to do with me? I mean, I'm not praying for Paul, because Paul's been dead for a long time, and so he doesn't need my protection anymore. I'm not praying that they accept the gift, because they, they did 2,000 years ago, so they don't really need that prayer request. Michael, what am I supposed to get out of this? And you're right. The specifics of this prayer is not the point of the prayer. See, what Paul was asking them to pray for 2,000 years ago, the principle of it there still fits with every missionary and really everyone sitting in this room today. The fact that you can fit every missionary and every one of us in this prayer. You see, let me give you the two examples because we'll start with missionaries either overseas or in North America. We can pray these same two things for them. We can pray for their protection because some of them are in very dark, closed places. Some of them are honestly in places that if they were caught handing out a Bible, they would be arrested and possibly killed. 
Some of them are in a place where right now, if they were doing what you're doing or what I'm doing, they would go to jail for the rest of their life. That's where some of these folks are. And he's saying, pray for their protection. Pray for their safety. Pray that the ones who are disobedient to the gospel will not stand in the way. Because there's, there's times that even though a country is open, those that are in authority kind of do everything they can to stop it. They do everything they can to put a roadblock. And so Paul is playing, listen, pray that the roadblocks are taken care of. Pray that the ones who are causing those speed bumps and the, the problems, pray that they're taken care of. And so this happens today. Pray for those. And he says, pray that the message they have is accepted. You see, Paul was carrying a gift of physical money, but when a missionary goes out today, he's carrying a gift far different than money, far greater than money. He's carrying a gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, listen, pray that when these missionaries go out, that they will be accepted for what they have, for the gospel that they have. And i got to tell you that... Um, my wife and I spent a summer in West Africa. And West Africa is a different place because if your skin color is like ours, you are widely accepted. Man, they will come to you, they will talk to you, and they, it's kind of fun. They will come up to you, especially little kids, and they'll push on your fingers, and they'll watch your fingers change colors because theirs don't do that, all right? But they just think that's awesome. And so they will flock to you. That's one area of our world. But you can get in your vehicle, and you can drive for two and a half hours up the road from here. And you can go to the Appalachian coal fields and the Appalachian mountains. And if you go into that area, it is very different. Those people are naturally skeptical of anybody who comes from the outside. They're, they're naturally skeptical of anybody they don't know who they are or their parents or their grandparents from. And so they have this idea that if you come there, you're wanting something from them. They don't accept anything from anybody from outside because they're too afraid that if you're going to give it to them, you're going to ask for something in return. And it's going to be worse for them. So he's saying, listen, pray that wherever these missionaries are at, that they are not skept- the people around them are not skeptical, they're not suspicious, that they will be open and they will accept this free gift, this, this gift of openness, this gift of acceptance. And so pray that the gift of salvation can be carried throughout all the regions of the world, whether they're skeptical or, or suspicious or not. Pray that the missionaries accepted so that the gift can be accepted as well. But see, this isn't just for missionaries overseas. It's the same principle that you and I can pray for each other. And you and I should be praying for each other. Because I'm guessing there's people in this room, there's people that are watching online right now, that your story is a lot like Paul. That before you met Christ, you lived a very different life. Before you met Christ, you hung out in certain places, and you were around certain people, and you did certain things. They may not have been the same things that Paul were doing, and they may not have looked anything like what Paul... In fact, they may have been the exact opposite of what Paul was doing. But you had a life, and then one day, you met Jesus, and all of a sudden, everything changed for you. One day, you left Jerusalem, which was where you were at, and everything was going on. One day, you left Jerusalem, and you met Jesus, and now you're over here, and you don't go hang out in Jerusalem anymore. You don't hang out with the people of Jerusalem. You don't live in Jerusalem anymore. You don't have anything to do with the people of Jerusalem anymore. And it's your Jerusalem, wherever you came from, and before you met Jesus. All of us have that story. And you're like, no, no, I was a church kid. I grew up in church, and my whole life's been in You've still got a Jerusalem, because there was a time in your life before you met Jesus. You've got it. You just may have to look a little harder for it. But I want you to see what God's doing here. God is calling Paul back to where he was at before he met him. He says, Paul, listen you got to go back to Jerusalem. Why? Because there's people there that need to hear the gospel, and there's people there that need to see the love of Christ. I want to share with you the exact same thing. Wherever your Jerusalem is, wherever your life was like before you met Jesus, my guess is that you left people behind there that need to hear the gospel and need to see the love of Jesus Christ. 
And so I want you to understand that Paul is praying this and he's saying, listen, I'm going to pray this for you. I'm praying for your protection to go back to those people that you left behind, but I'm also praying that they accept you because you are very different than you were when you left. You are very different than, than when you stepped out of this lifestyle. And so we need to be praying for each other that we are willing to go back to our Jerusalems and realize that we are different than when we left there, but we're willing to be accepted and we're praying that we're accepted so they'll listen to the message and they'll see the love of Christ in us and through us. And so just because this is a prayer that happened 2,000 years ago, it is very much applicable for us today because we are in called back to our Jerusalems to take this gift of salvation to them and to all of us. And so we are praying that when you walk back into your Jerusalem, when you walk back to the place and the people and the, the things you were doing before, not that you start doing them, but we're praying that they will accept you because they need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they need to see the love of Christ. And so this gospel, this new lifestyle, we're praying that they'll accept it. And that's true for everybody sitting in this room and everybody watching online. That you're being called to a mission field and it may be the one that you walked right out of. But when you pray, pray that they accept you back. And there's one final thing that Paul is asking the Romans to pray for and it's this beautiful idea. He is praying for a much, much larger field. He's praying that this is not all that there is. That there's a greater harvest for him. And this is the one thing I love about Paul is that Paul is never complacent with where he's at. Not that he's not satisfied. Not that he's not uh, where God wants him to be. But he's never complacent with ministry. He's never satisfied with the number of churches that he's planted. He's never satisfied with the number of trips he's been on. He's never satisfied with the number of people that have come to Christ either through him uh, directly or through his teaching or through his planting these churches. He's not satisfied with any of that because he knows there are still people that need to hear the gospel. There are still people that need to be heard or that need to know that Christ died on the cross for them and they can be washed in. And so Paul is really telling them to pray for this. Pray because there's more work to be done. Pray because I, I want to expand what I'm doing right now. And it's not so Paul is known. It's so that Christ is known. We see this, that he's on his way to Jerusalem. But then he asks for kind of this transition back. He, he doesn't want to get stuck there. So he's praying that everything goes smooth in Jerusalem because he's got other plans. And we see that in verse 32. He says, pray that everything goes smooth in Jerusalem and that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed together with you. See, Paul's headed to Jerusalem, but that's, he's got a next step already planned out. He, he's planning to go to Jerusalem, but when he finishes in Jerusalem, he's planning to come to Rome, to these people he's writing to. He's planning to come to them. He's never seen them, he's never met them, but he's planning to come to them because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, he tells them over and over and over, this is what he says in verse 29. He says, I know that when I come to you, I will come into the fullness of the blessings of Christ. You see, Paul is confident in this next step that he's called to. He he's, could be, listen, Paul had lots of friends in lots of different places. And Paul could have just stopped and said, hey, I'm good in Jerusalem. I'm good if I go up to Antioch. I'm really good if I go up to Ephesus. I love the Galatians. I'll just go hang out with them. And Paul says, no. When I leave Jerusalem, I'm coming to you guys. Why? Because God's called me there. That's my next step. But that's still not the final destination. Paul has even a bigger plan in mind. He's got this long-range plan that he's working on. You see, Rome is just a stepping stone to what he really wants to accomplish. And we look back in verse 24. He says this is where his ultimate plans are. He says in verse 24, he says, Whenever I travel to Spain, for I hope to see you when I pass through and to be assisted by you on my journey there, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. And he says it again in verse 28, the very end of it. He says, I will visit you on my way to Spain. And so he says, listen, I'm going to Jerusalem now. And when I finish there, I'm coming to you. 
and I'm going to hang out with you guys for a little while because we're brothers and sisters and we're going to, we're going to hang out together and we're going to have fun together. But then I'm moving on. Because there's something beyond you. There's something else that I'm trying to get to. I'm trying to get to Spain. And this is the ultimate destination for Paul. And it's not because of the Canary Islands. It's not because the weather is great. It's not because he's heard that Spain is a great place to retire to. You see, for Paul, Spain is the furthest point in the West. They don't have America on their map right now. And Paul has worked from Rome east. He's been working to the east so far. And Paul says, listen, there's a whole western part of the, the um, uh, continent of, uh, of Europe that I need to get to. And I'm going as far west as I can. And so I'm going to use you guys. I'm going to come to you guys. And I'm going to enjoy fellowship with you. And then I'm hoping you're going to send me on my way. I hope you're going to help support me. Because I've got somebody else in another part of the nation, in another part of the world that needs to hear the gospel. And so Paul is living out. He's hoping to live out what God has called us to do. To go to make disciples to the ends of the earth. And so he's gone east. And now he wants to turn. He wants to go west. And he's saying, listen, I want to go to the places that the gospel has never been heard. I want to go to the places that people are dying every single day without hearing the name of Jesus. Because they are desperate for it and they don't even know it and so Paul's not praying for this retirement home he's not praying for this comfortable life anymore he says listen I've got to go there because people are dying without hearing the name of Jesus people are dying there without salvation and so I need you to pray I need you to pray that I get done here so that I can get to work over there I need you to pray so that I can get done here so there's there's somebody else that I can share the gospel with and so we can pray this for ourselves you know it's easy to say God sent me to Spain but let's be honest it's sometimes harder when we just simply pray, God, who's next? What's next for me, God? And some of us in this church and in this setting and some of us online, we're ministry leaders. And what if we pray this for our ministries? Whatever our ministry is, God, what's next? This is where we're at, but we're not content with where we're at. God, what's next? Where are you leading me to next? But what if we just all prayed as Christians? What if we all prayed as brothers and sisters? God, who's next? God, I've been with this person, I've worked with this person, I've prayed with this person, and, and everybody around me, it's been great, everybody around me, we've all had revival, we're all saved, and it's all great. We're just content. No, no, no. Who's next? God, will you open my eyes to who you're calling me to next? Will you open my eyes to the one that needs to hear the gospel? And, and if it's across the globe, great. If it's a person across the street, if it's the person that lives in my house, great. But God, who's next? Where do you want me to go from here? Because the only time that you're retiring from being a missionary and a minister is when God calls you home. And any other time, this needs to be our prayer. God, who's next? I want to finish with one last quick story. William Carey was known as the father of the modern mission movement. And he lived in England a long time ago. And uh, he really became burdened somewhat like Paul, for people who had never heard the gospel. He really became burdened for people who had never had a chance to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his heart began to break because he was convinced that if these people didn't hear the gospel of Christ, then they would spend eternity in hell. And he's honest. He's right. He, this is what the gospel teaches us, that you're either with Christ, in Christ, through Christ, or you're not. And he says, what about these people that have never had a chance to hear the gospel of Christ? And William Carey has this problem because his heart was so moved that he couldn't sleep at night because there were people in other parts of the world that didn't go to church in this big, huge cathedral like he did. They didn't go to church because there was no church. They didn't have a Bible to hold in their hands. And he couldn't sleep at night because he was so brokenhearted for the people that needed to hear the gospel. 
And so he began to get these groups together, and he began to encourage all these pastors. He says, listen, get groups together. They call them missionary societies. Get these groups together who will raise money, who will send missionaries out, because there's a whole world around us. Not billions like it is today, but there may be a billion. I don't know how many was in those days, but there's a whole world around us that is desperately in need of salvation, and we've got to go. We've got to send people out. And so he did. He started one of these groups himself with this group of men, and he started, they started praying, and they started trying to raise money for it, and they thought they had a missionary lined up. They thought they had somebody who was going to be willing to go, and that guy told them, no, it's sorry, I don't, think, I don't think I'm the one. I don't think I'm the one that's supposed to go, and I don't think I'm supposed to go where you want me to go. And so this group kind of got together, and they kind of had this emergency meeting or whatever you want to call it, and they said, we've got it. We've got all the resources we need. We just need somebody to go. And William Carey's friend, um, Andrew Fuller, looked at him and said, William, this was your idea. And every idea sounds great until it's your idea, right? Every idea sounds wonderful until all of a sudden it's, hey, this, was, this is yours. This was your passion. This is where your heart was at, William. And I think you need to go. And William looked at it for just a moment. He thought about it just a moment. He stood there with his circle of friends who had been working and sharing this passion with him and that he'd been pouring into and they'd been doing all they could. And he looked at Andrew Fuller and he simply said this, I'll go down into the pit. And by the pit, he means in India where the gospel had never been preached before. He said, I'll go down into the pit if only you will hold the rope. This morning... When you walked in and you came and you sat down in your seat, either the seat you sat in or the seat that you were sitting next to, there was a little piece of paper that had a missionary family or a missionary and where they were from and where they're serving. And some of them are international, some of them are North American. But listen, these are men and women that are in the pit. These are men and women that some of them, or you don't even have their name because they are so deep in the pit of darkness that they can't share their name with us. They can't share where they're at with us. These are men and women who are in the pit. And some of them you are like, oh, this is in North Carolina. That's not the pit. It is. They're in a pit of darkness. And guess what? They're counting on you and they're counting on me to hold the rope. They're counting on us to do what Paul is asking the Romans to do. Hold the rope. Hold them up in prayer. Lift up the spiritual battle cry with each other. Join them in the fight. Pray for their protection. Pray for their acceptance. Pray for where they are at now and where God's going to place them in the future. Pray for this larger mission field. God, we should be praying so that every one of these missionaries is so overwhelmed with the response of the gospel. I put those papers on your chair this morning so that you have a face and a name of somebody you can hold the rope for this week. And so we're going to pray together. And as we do, the band's going to come up and we're going to have our invitation and we're going to pray together. And maybe during this time of invitation, I don't know what it looks like for you. Maybe you just hold that person and you just hold the rope for them. You don't know them. Romans didn't know Paul. You don't know what they're going through. The Romans didn't know what Paul was going through. He just says, hold the rope. I'll go in the pit. You just hold the rope. Let's pray together.